With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant uh, Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We have a very exciting uh, first-time guest, so I just want to get straight to it. Um, uh, Just for a little background... Um, and sort of level setting, I, one of my great frustrations, which I've mentioned a few times on here is that, um, I get very frustrated with the way both the right and the left in America talk about COVID as if this is like an American issue. There's a very parochial, and then there's even the more parochial aspect that a lot of New Yorkers tend to think it's about New York. Um, and you know, there's, there are ridiculous Conspiracy theories, you know, remember Donald Trump used to say that COVID was designed to hurt him in the elections, which is just a very strange theory, given that if the Chinese did that, why would they unleash it on their own people and then send it to Italy before it came to the United States? And so I've been looking all over for somebody who can talk about sort of the pandemic and COVID and all this in a more uh, holistic global sense. And I even asked some um, high-ranking uh, mucky-mucks and all of this stuff, including uh, our friend Scott Gottlieb and Matt Ridley, and didn't really find anybody. And then I asked somebody at The Economist, and they said, our COVID guru is this guy, uh, Edward Carr. And uh, he has been incredibly gracious and has agreed to come on and just talk about all of this stuff from a more sort of global or international perspective and whatever else we want to get into. So Edward Carr, Deputy Editor of The Economist, thank you very much for being here. It's great to be with you, Jonah. Thanks for asking me. Okay. I know I told you we were going to talk about COVID, but I just, I have to ask us, you're British and your name, Edward Carr. Are you related to the historian E.H. Carr? I, I wish I were. I spend a lot of my time writing about international relations and, and I get people coming up to me reverently saying, you know, was he your grandfather, your great grandfather? And when I had to break the bad news that, you know, my father only got to university in his sixties, um, I, they'd walk away disappointed. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I thought maybe you were, your real name was like Edward Carr the Fourth or something like that. Um, <laughs> I'm Edward Carr the First. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, okay. So you know, just to sort of level set. I mean, actually, maybe we can get into it this way. Um, Boris Johnson just announced, basically, as I understand it, they're going to just repeal all the COVID measures. Um, how's that being received in England? And then we can broaden out the lens a little bit. I'd say, I mean, England's been a little bit polarised on this, so that there's there has been, at every one of these decision points, there's been a bunch of people who've said, oh, no, no, it's coming too early, and a bunch of people who say it's coming too late. And I think the judgments recently have been about right, actually. Um, he's taken a couple of brave decisions not to tighten up when, when a lot of health people who kind of got used to calling the shots advised him to. 
And it turned out that uh, the combination of booster shots and a successful vaccination program, and let's face it, very high levels of infection earlier in the pandemic, mean that immunity levels in in the UK population are pretty high. And the really interesting thing is that... um, you know, it's becoming increasingly clear that thinking about cases is just wrong with this disease now. You want to worry about how many people are going to hospital. So if you look at cases, especially with Omicron, which is really infectious, you can you can conjure up terrifying numbers, which if this had been the original uh, virus from Wuhan or it had been Delta, you'd have been thinking, you know, we're, we're in really bad trouble. But with Omicron, you've got these levels of protection in the, in the community from boosters and from previous infections, which means actually, you know what? Hospital admissions have been pretty okay and serious disease mm-hmm. hasn't been too bad. And so, yeah, it's a, it may be a little bit risky, but we're going to have to get used to this. This disease is with us. We're going to have to learn to live with it. You know, you can't keep shutting yourself away every time something happens. So on the, uh, I want to get back to the, the Boris Johnson stuff in a second, but on Omicron, w- w- do you come down that that the mildness of all of it has to do entirely with the herd immunity, or no, not at all, both. So you, both. Omicron's also just less, yes, uh, pathogenic or whatever they call it, right? Yeah, less and lethal. that's funny enough. That's related to how infectious it is because it it sits higher in the respiratory ta- tract. Uh, there's more virus kind of near the surface, so when you breathe out, it spreads more easily. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, because it's not in your lungs. Uh, it's it's inherently less lethal. Now that doesn't mean that people who get Omicron can't die from it. They can, particularly if they're not protected by vaccine right. or they haven't been infected before. But it is it is a it is a milder version of the disease than Delta was. Yeah, I had Omicron and I had a vicious sore throat. But I think that's in part because, and, and so did a couple of my colleagues who got it. But it seemed to me that that's that's a good sign because that means it's the the, yeah. the, the centrality of it is in your basically your throat rather than in your lungs and and so the how, price long, you pay how, long, is, how long were you out of action for i was really uh, it hit me pretty hard i i did not get boosted i did not get the booster because uh when everyone was getting the booster right before the holidays i just couldn't get an appointment anywhere it's not that i'm anti-booster but so my last my second pfizer shot had been in may so i think i was hitting the end of the shelf life of it and so it it knocked me you know out for I was feeling really bad for about three days, and yeah, you, you um, lose protection after about three months uh, yeah. with most of the most of them. So, so you know, you you'll get the disease, but you know, part of your immune system, the one that that maybe takes a little bit longer to respond, is still is still there and still going to protect you from really serious disease. Yeah, and and so w- once it becomes like a bad flu, the public policy response is different, and we can get into that in a second. But uh, so back to the UK. So in America, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, there covid has mapped itself not perfectly but largely along the pre-existing uh culture war lines and so anti-masking from the beginning was a very right-wing thing uh pro-masking is a very left-wing thing obviously there are we're speaking in broad generalities so there are exceptions to all of this um the anti-vax stuff is which for most of my life, anti-vaccination sentiment was disproportionately on the left. Uh, not entirely on the left, but disproportionately on the left. And then all of a sudden, because of the pre-existing craziness here, uh, it swung wildly to the right. So now you have people who are literally, um, you know, I have a friend of a friend who uh, 
just had uh, know someone who a, a friend of a friend of mine just died and because he just absolutely refused to get the vaccine um just and there's a craziness involved in some of this and so far as they do these interviews in the hospitals i remember cbs did one where they asked the guy why won't you get vaccinated do you regret not getting vaccinated and it's like not at all because um and this guy very ill saying because i'm not going to give in to their agenda and as if there's a massive surrender of principle to getting something that'll save your life because democrats want you to do it has it broken down at all like that in the UK, can you can you just, just, say that an ideological position is at an indicator a of maybe what the COVID is? A bit, a bit. Yeah. You know, there there is a there is a thing called the COVID Research Group, the CRG in Parliament, mm-hmm. who replaced the ERG, the European Research Group, who are the who are the pro Brexiteers. So there's there's a little bit of that going <laughs> on. But um, now I've got an American friend who came across and was was on the tube in London and was sort of horrified to see how many people didn't have masks on. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, uh, well, what's going on? I don't understand the politics. What's the politics of all this? Because uh, he, he comes from New York. And I said, that, you know what? There's, there's no politics. You know, the Brits can't be asked. They can't be bothered to do all sorts of things. Yeah. And uh, it really was a kind of laziness. So, so non-mask wearing in, in the UK was broadly kind of laziness rather than, rather than a political statement. You do see demonstrations in Europe. Um, the Netherlands has had some bad demonstrations. I mean, demonstrations in Germany, but you know, in the in the in the scheme of things, it, it's pretty small beer. And and I don't think you've had sort of anything like the almost exploitative partisanship um, mm-hmm. of this issue. It's been that's the thing that's been upsetting me look, looking from overseas is how it's not just that people have spontaneously um, sort of responded in a slightly partisan way. It seems to me that people who know better have exploited it. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, given that lives are at stake, I think, I think that's pretty, pretty despicable, actually. So I, I agree, and we can get to that. But the, the outrage that's going on with Boris about this party, is that, would you say that is a, I'm sorry? I think we lost your audio. Were you just talking? Oh, no, no, you didn't. I, I, okay. you said, I, I was laughing because you said, this party, you've no idea how many parties they were. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Okay, but right. but so he he was you know he was he was partying, which is a nice verb that could be singular or plural. Um, and the outrage about it is um, uh, is is it a would you would you characterize it as more of a sort of a gen, general British outrage, or does it really is it also part of a partisan? You know, scheme. Are there a lot of Tories who are defending, um, John, or conservatives who are defending Boris and all of this, or is it? The, the, does it transcend things? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I uh, it's it, funnily enough, it's on our cover this week in the in the UK, um, and I was writing the made editorial about it, so I've been thinking about this question, and um, the, the I think the outrage comes from first of all. Um, his sense of entitlement, you know, in mm-hmm. other words, there's kind of one rule for 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 me and another rule for everybody else. Then, then, um, you know, it made a big impression when um, there were two parties, not just one, there were two parties on the evening before the Queen went to the memorial service for Prince Philip, her husband of, I don't know how many years, 70 years, or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. She observed social distancing and was this kind of rather tragic figure sitting on her own dressed in black in a pew in Westminster mm-hmm. Abbey. 
And the night before, they've been up to sort of two or three in the morning, wheeling in suitcases of booze, <laughs> partying it up. And it's not a good look, really. It's no. not a good look. Um, if you look at how the how um, disapproval breaks down, conservative voters are are critical. More, more than half of them you know, don't believe the prime minister and are very critical of him. Conservative party members, i.e. the kind of faithful, are mm-hmm. much more inclined to believe him. Um, I think the, the the general public at last time I saw, I saw a figure of 6%, which is something like, you know, the same number of people who believe in the Loch Ness Monster. So you yeah. know, not a very high proportion of people actually believe him. But among conservative voters, it's it's quite a lot higher. So there's there's a little bit of that, a little bit of that. But it, I don't think it's on the scale um, as, a, as a sort of badge of tribal belonging as it, as it is in the U.S. Yeah. So so where, you know, as you just sort of look around the world, um, where have the the either the sociological or the political responses from the public surprised you the most? I mean, where 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 is what you know? It doesn't have to be left versus right. It could be you know elites. You know the elites versus the people thing. I think is everywhere because of these two sets of rules stuff. Um, but um, are there places where COVID is? Roiling politics in in intriguing ways. I mean, I, I I think the first when one looks around the world, the the really the important first thing to get your head around is is that the numbers we all look at on on you know Johns Hopkins dashboard, if if you use that, or mm-hmm. the WHO World Health Organization has a dashboard as well. Those numbers are, are do not capture the number of cases. They they capture the number of tests, positive tests, right. Uh, and the difference between those two is huge. So, so we spent quite a lot of our time constructing a, a measure of excess mortality, which goes round from country to country and used um, uh, a sort of AI method to try and estimate excess deaths, the deaths this in the you know in the time of COVID that are over and above uh, the deaths you'd expect in that country uh, as per normal. And the figure we came out with for the world, and this thing updates continuously as, mm-hmm. as it goes on, the figure we've come up with most recently, which is a couple of days old, a central estimate for the excess deaths from during the pandemic is, is 19.6 million, which is three and a half times bigger than the death toll in um, the Johns Hopkins count. Right, And that covers... Um, you know, just sort of massive underestimates in the places where you don't have death. So, uh, a good example in in the, in, in Europe, it, the, the ac- excess death total is about thirty percent bigger than the official count. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Africa, it's nine times the official count, and mm-hmm. in Asia, it's seven times the official count. So you end up with with um, a really you, you end up with a, with a kind of strange world of mirrors where um, in in the official count, the U.S. death toll. As a proportion of the population is worse than Russia's, um, right. uh, and that's pretty bad. Uh, but when you put in the excess deaths, Russia's death toll as a proportion of the population is two times worse than America's. So when you ask about what's public, what's the public reaction? I think there's a sense that in those countries where um, excess deaths sort of massively outstrip the count. There's a sense that people haven't been quite told the truth, mm-hmm. that this thing's sort of hard to get your head around. And equally, I, I think, in, in particularly on the left in America, 
there's a sense of kind of catastrophe and and sort of as if the America's done worse than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, and, and it hasn't had a great pandemic. That's true, but it hasn't done worse than any, anywhere in the world. That's that, that's just not borne out by the figures. It's a it's an artifact of the counting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, that's uh, one of the few places where Donald Trump had a point. Right. Yeah, is that yeah. the more you measure it accurately, the worse it's going to look. <laughs> exactly. Particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, when there was a global shortage of tests yeah. or, or at real peaks like now when, when Omicron's you know, raging through the world. Lots of cases don't go counted. So, so uh, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that it's, it's, it's uh, it, it, our sort of mental picture of this pandemic is, is, I think, very distorted by, you know, things like what what data was available to whom and when yeah so i i want i want to probe on this just for a second cuz i'm sort of fascinated by this um obviously the excess deaths aren't 100% deaths from covid itself some of its overdoses some of its you know which is co- pandemic related right and some of it is like inability to get medical services, test screenings, all that kind of stuff because of the system shut down, right? Completely, completely. That's exactly right. But, but if you think about it, it's, it's, it's saying how many, you know, the pandemic changed society in all sorts of ways. You know, it, 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 people stayed at home. So let's take, let's take a country like New Zealand, which has negative excess deaths because they Mm -hmm. shut down. People didn't travel (laughs) around. There weren't so many road deaths. People didn't get drunk and fall over and hit their heads as much. Um, so, so New Zealand has negative excess deaths. Um, that doesn't. And, and what it means is the pandemic and the and the policies that and the consequence of the pandemic ended up meaning that fewer people died than you'd expect. And I think that's a kind of fair a fairer measure of sort of how societies dealt with the pandemic. But mm-hmm. you are completely right. These are not all people who have died with, from the virus. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I just know people. I, my mom has met, had some health stuff and like. She couldn't get some tests because the medical system wasn't responsive. And and it wasn't that she was going to get in trouble from COVID, but she was going to get but, yeah. but because of the pandemic, it would just made a lot of other things more difficult. And yeah, quite right. Um yeah. so but also so on the excess death thing, so uh, you know, I I, I I used to do in my twenties, I used to do a fair bit of of demography research stuff, and I'm I've always been sort of interested in it. And one of the reasons why the social scientists love and demographers love looking at mortality rates is that it's very difficult to misinterpret a dead body. Right. You know, and there, there are all sorts of other things that it, how do you define this and how do you measure that? But like a dead body is a dead body. And, um, and so I get why people are focusing on it at the same time though. Um, when you say Asia's, you said Asia was like seven times greater excess. Seven times the official count. Yeah. How much? I mean, I trust Japan's numbers. Do you trust China's numbers on any of this stuff? How is China like the transparency issue with China seems to me have gone off a cliff? So, so we have a confidence level, and and the confidence level is quite wide. Um, you know, our ninety percent, ninety five percent confidence level is twelve million to twenty two million, and our central estimate is nineteen point six million. So, it, yes, these are estimates, uh, and they're they're kind of better than nothing. Uh, as mm-hmm. good as you can get, if, if you like. I, I think China's numbers, um, which um, are, are very low, could well be wrong. But I, do, I don't think you're going to find that they've covered up, you know, tens of millions of deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They might have. They might. They might be counting slightly wrong. But it, you kind of you'd know if it, if it was if it was wrong on a massive scale. 
Um, so when you said before earlier, and I, I think you're absolutely right. It's why I wanted to have you on that people talk about America as being uniquely that we screwed it up worse than anybody and, and all that. And I'm not, I'm, I was very harsh critic about how Donald Trump handled things. I'm pretty harsh critic about how Joe Biden's handled things, but it seems that we're sort of in the meaty part of the bell curve in terms of the distribution of COVID responses. And in some ways we've done quite well. What countries, what, and it's unfair to talk about some extremely poor country and their COVID response, but of advanced industrialized nations, who would you say has handled the response best and worst? Uh, yeah, America's uh, it, it, on our on our table. America comes in about twenty fifth uh, mm-hmm. worst. Um, so that's worse than quite a lot of Eastern Europe. Uh, sorry, it's, it's better than quite a lot of Eastern Europe and worse than quite a lot of Western Europe. But it's kind of mm-hmm. it's it's in it's in that range. The 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 rich country. I mean, there are some rich countries which have every natural advantage, and New Zealand is is an obvious example because it just kind of basically shut the door uh, and. Uh, Taiwan was very impressive because it was onto this super fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it was it sort of recognised something was going on in Wuhan before China was even willing to admit it. But the one that um, surprises me is actually Japan because the, the other thing about this disease is that that it's terribly responsive to age, mm-hmm. and um, you know the risks as you get older are are many many times higher than they are for for young people. Well, Japan mm-hmm. has a very old population. Yeah. Um, and it's kept the, the death rate right down, um, just just fifteen people per hundred thousand, uh, which is twenty times better than the US. Um, wow. So, so I think Japan is is kind of amazing, and I, I it's it's partly because um, you know mask wearing and social distancing happen very very spontaneously. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not a difficult policy. Their vaccination program wasn't spectacularly good. They had to deal with an Olympics. <laughs> they managed that okay. Um, it, it, it's it, you know perhaps some people say that perhaps there have been a, a greater exposure to coronaviruses sort of historically in evolutionary right. time in Asia, and that oh, that means definitely. some some people's immune immune systems are, are sort of better adapted to this. That's just total speculation, as far as I know at the moment. Um, but but Japan has done particularly particularly well. See, I thought you were going to say because this is an argument I've heard from um, some colleagues of mine at AEI that it was the fact that those avian flu and other those other uh, epidemics in the last over the last fifteen years had culturally not that's, evolutionarily that's well. yes, no, trained up societies to, to be very responsive. Like, like as a tourist in Europe, I'm always shocked by how many. Asian tourists wore masks yeah. pre-COVID, you know, and it's just cultural there's, response, there's, right? There's definitely something to that. You know, South, South Korea famously had a very nasty episode of SARS when someone came in and, and that's, you know, they've done well. It prepared them. They, they set up some some sort of immunoresponse mechanisms to that, which were able to kick into action fast. I mean, West, you know, Western Europe was very, very slow to get off the ground. If you remember the the before this pandemic, there were predictions about you know who was best prepared, and the United States and Britain came out right on top. And mm-hmm. clearly, kind of clearly, we weren't. Yeah. Neither of us. We've you know we've done moderately well, and the the only area where we've done particularly well is is in you know making vaccines and and in some cases distributing them. Although the, the U.S. has struggled slightly with that. So in the early part. Uh, I, early part, early to middle part of the pandemic, 
um, there were it was an interesting sort of convergence of American, a certain f- tribe of American libertarians, and basically the guys in the orbit of the of the Spectator in London, who had completely fetishized Sweden as the you know as, as, you know it's, it's it's always kind of funny to me when people of the right start saying we have to copy Sweden because it's that's that's breaking against type <laughs> um but uh uh what um um where does it stand now among you know sort of level-headed observers yeah. of all this about the Swedish model was it a success it's, was it a partial it, success was it a failure it's really interesting this because i think you know that you're completely right. The first sort of misperception is that people take, you know, recorded cases as true cases. The other one is that they they latch on to snapshots at a particular point in time, mm-hmm. and you know the pandemic's only over when it's over, and it's only then you'll know kind of how various places have done. So um, it's very interesting to compare Sweden with Germany. It could because just as what you say uh, about the there's the, the a libertarian right. Um, mm-hmm. admiring Sweden, that there was a sort of various bunch of Merkel lovers who, mm-hmm. who thought Germany was fantastic and had just had a you know brilliant uh, pandemic. Well, you know, surprise, surprise, Sweden kind of more or less abandoned uh, that very relaxed policy and started tightening up. And, and Germany had a pretty bad um, last last year or so. So now Germany's actually done worse than done worse than Sweden. But mm-hmm. neither of them are, are are particularly outside the European range, um, you know. And and if Sweden managed to, I mean, Sweden doing slightly better than Germany, and and it's it, it's partly because they they sort of abandoned the totally relaxed policy. We're trying to find countries that did virtually nothing, and we 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 came across. Um, Mexico is an example of a country that did virtually nothing, and I think it's only now bits of it are introducing some mask mandates. But um, AMLO, you know, when he had COVID, was a great proponent of fix vapor rub as a, mm. as a way of, de- of dealing with the disease, uh, and they've they you know they had no real lockdowns or anything. The truth is, they had a they had a pretty bad they had a pretty bad pandemic. And yeah, I their mortality that, rate is higher than the U.S. is, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, much higher. Yes, yeah. much, much higher, about 50% higher, I think. Yeah. About 100,000. But, but it, that goes to, I think, another sort of generalizable pattern about this pandemic, which is um, if you think that um, age uh, is a vulnerability and, and so are comorbidities like uh, obesity and diabetes, um, on the one hand, and then on the other, one way to protect you is has been sort of you know um, furlough schemes that allow people to stay at home or, or sort of co-payments and things that, that you've had in the US, um, uh, and then you know a, a well-provided um, hospital infrastructure. You can imagine that that some countries in in um, sub-Saharan Africa who maybe have a median age of like. 15, 16, 17, 19, 20, whatever it is, mm-hmm. they're pretty well protected. I mean, yeah. the disease will go there, but but they are so young that there aren't that many old people who are going to suffer. And 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 people aren't as obese and diabetic mm-hmm. as they are elsewhere. Then you go to the other end of the extreme, and you've got wealthy countries that have got um uh you know an ability to get medicines, treatments, uh, can afford to sort of pay people to stay at home more so that they get more social distancing. They've done okay as well if they've if they've organised themselves right, 
And the countries that have been most vulnerable are those in the middle, which you know not, don't have the money to do much about it, but mm-hmm. have a, an elderly population. There's lots of problems with obesity. The health system's probably not that good. Mm-hmm. So those are the countries like Peru, Mexico, yeah. Eastern Europe, are, right? Yeah, Eastern Europe, where they've yeah. had you know really bad. You know, it's called everything's sort of it's the kind of sweet spot for the disease, if you like. And if, if I were to sort of have one generalization that sort of makes sense of of the world, it's that, that those you know, it's not the poorest countries. It's, mm-hmm. it's not. It's not the richest countries. It's the one. The ones in the middle that have been most vulnerable. So this reminds me. You're saying earlier about maybe there's a completely speculative hypothetical theory that maybe there's an evolutionary advantage for Japan and whatnot. I remember early on, it seemed like India was just sort of not having a pandemic for a little while. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I remember listening to some experts on the radio saying. Well, you know, one theory is, is that the, that the immune system of Indians is so much more robust because of other pathogens and whatnot. Um, and, um, and I've heard that similar theory about Africa, you know, and there's a superficial plausibility to it is like, if your immune system is constantly fending off diseases that have been, that are not nearly as prevalent in everyday life in, in the in the West or wherever, um, you could see how your immune system might just be, have more muscle to it. Um, but then I talked to doctors and say, well, it just doesn't work that way. You know, like, yeah. So I, I don't think, I don't find that very convincing. I, I do think age is the age is the, and comorbidities is the main, is the main explanation really. So then but why did India seem not to get hit by the, the alpha wave? And it was only until like, I think I guess Delta that all of a sudden they were freaking out about, about the, yeah, I, I think again, this is this is complete speculation. So uh, you know, take take it as, as no matter the me, sure. me shooting the breeze. But um, if I were if I were speculating, I'd say that um, if you look at the patterns of spread of, of disease here, it it, it 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 goes with international travel. So hmm. you know, in the states, it's New York. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. the coast that get hit first, but New York in particular. In Europe, it's London. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has sort of more connections with the rest of the world than, than most cities in, in Europe. And um, India doesn't just doesn't have that much international travel. And Italy, actually, very interesting, you know, one theory, reason it's theory got to Italy first is there are really quite important industrial connections between mm-hmm. um, bits of manufacturing in northern Italy uh, and, uh, uh, and China. And there are sort of, there's a labor force in, in common there. And so there's a lot of travel between those two bits. So my, my, Pet theory on this would be that you know it was always going to get to India last, and when mm-hmm. it got to India, it so happens that Delta came along, which was mm-hmm. really really infectious and mm-hmm. spread super fast. I mean, Omicron is is getting to India now and may just have peaked in, in India, but um, got there a little bit later. Um, but there there are you know this is this is still a fairly new disease. There are things that that we don't understand, and the immune system is unbelievably complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and act in mysterious ways. Um, all right. So you said that China may be fudging, but it but it's not fudging by orders of magnitude or anything. Okay. What about Russia? Like I I I think about I've only been to Russia once, but I I lived in uh, I lived in Prague, you know, in the very early nineties. So I, I kind of and I've traveled around Eastern Europe a good bit. Just knowing what I know about 
those kinds of countries, and I'm speaking with grotesque generalizations, the idea that COVID hasn't hit Russia terribly hard, I just find remarkably implausible. And when the Russians are giving people a vaccine that the doctors, the medical people I talk to say, that's not, I'll be generous. They say, that's not the vaccine I would take. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, you know, what do we know about it? How much do we believe their numbers? Um, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, just to, just to start with, with, with China on that, you know, the, the reason for thinking that China um, isn't really lying uh, and, and Russia is, is that China's got a zero COVID policy. Mm-hmm. So um, it really can't afford to have unreported cases of the disease floating around because oh, the will get away from it. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, their whole response depends upon spotting every single case and coming down hard on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and perhaps we can get to this a bit later, but I think Omicron presents some problems for it there because it's so infectious. And I also think sort of as successful as this strategy is, if in brackets, you know, completely draconian and, mm-hmm. and illiberal, um, right. it's a difficult one to get out of. But we can come back to that a bit later. Russia, on the other hand, uh, you know, ha- has not had a zero COVID <laughs> policy, but o- on the contrary, uh, you know, it- it's got um, a-, a really high caseload. Um, I think in-, in our table, it's it's I think it's second highest um, of-, of all the countries. So it's it's really really quite bad, and um, you know, it-, it goes doesn't doesn't it fit with with uh, i mean maybe i'm being reductionist here but doesn't it fit with everything one knows about the way that that vladimir putin governs his country right. you know it's a country that's governed with you know um uh, a kind of pretense you know a kind of sham democracy um sham elections uh the news is completely managed right uh it, it's it's you know uh, nothing is true and everything is possible as as the title of one book um, ha, uh, had it, uh, and so um, you know, uh, and it's also interesting, you know, the way the way that they promoted Sputnik V, which was their vaccine that they they declared, um, you know, to, to work before it had, had clinical proper clinical trials because they wanted to get there first. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was that was pretty bad. But the way they promoted it and and sort of produced, um, um, you know, misinformation that, that against other vaccines uh, as if as if sort of somehow um you know every every successful other vaccine was a blow against sputnik v it it, it just shows you the sort of zero sum thinking of putin i think um now sputnik v, v does work um uh, and it, and it works okay um i i think um but um the the vaccination rate in russia is is very very low because when you're in a society where people don't trust their government, right? They don't trust um, the 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 things that people are asking them to inject into, have injected into their arms. So uh, you know, a low trust society is one where you get low rates of vaccination. And, and the thing we know about va- low rates of vaccination is that you get high rates of serious disease. So um, you know. I think I think your sense that this is to some extent a a product of a of a dysfunctional political system I, I find t- completely convincing. Um, so get back to this parochial thing because you just reminded me. You know, um, I'm profoundly frustrated by elites. You know, I I used to, I was at Fox News for 11 years and I left recently and 
Um, <laughs> and uh, um, I don't know if it, the I news the made story. it across the I pond. I read the story, yeah. Jonah. <laughs> and, uh, Worldwide um, coverage. <laughs> but the number of people who, including politicians like you know Ron DeSantis, um, who, or even uh, Ron DeSantis is at least being clever, but not necessarily dishonest. People like Ron Johnson, you know, the senator from Wisconsin, the the desire to pander to anti-vaccine sentiment among certain segments of the elite, among people who are vaccinated, you know, like, so they, like they took the vaccine, but then they pander to people who want to be told they don't have to. Um, are, is America alone in that? Or are there other countries where this sort of, there's a cottage industry of anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be that, the vaccine will make you magnetic, um, which was an early claim and from the anti-vax crowd. Uh, but like, is there is, is 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 America alone on that, or is that also something that has popped up in other places? There, there, there are um, anti-vaxxers um, who who are on the fringes of politics in you know ev- every democracy. Um, you know, one of the main ones here is a guy called Piers Corbyn, who's the who's the um, the brother of Jeremy Corbyn, who you, you might mm-hmm. remember, this mm-hmm. sort of you know, who's now, thank goodness, receded into the background of British life. Yeah. Um, but what's I think distinctive about the US is that that um, these are senior political figures mm-hmm. uh, in one of the two main parties, and I think that is that is unusual. Yeah. Um, so when you see Greg Abbott, you know, taking the stance. He is because he's worried about. I, I submit, and you can tell that I'm wrong. I submit because mm-hmm. he's worried about being primaried mm-hmm. rather than because he really believes it. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen. I, I really don't think I've seen that uh, anywhere else. And, um, and it's got worse. Uh, you know, it started. It started with masks. It got worse with vaccines, and then you know, I I I, I despair slightly because, um, uh, you know. Let me, let me take one example. Um, we've we've got a looked up some papers um, which we got in the, actually covering this week that looked at the role of coercion in getting people vaccinated. And um, so these are not laws to um, as perhaps Austria is thinking of doing, for instance, finding people who didn't get vaccinated, but saying if you want to go to bars and gyms and restaurants, then you need a you need you need proof of of vaccination. And this paper looked at at four provinces in Canada, um, and after they introduced these rules, uh, first dose vaccinations went up by forty two percent, and after two weeks they went up by seventy one percent. And then they they another paper looked in at at um, Italy, France, and Germany, and worked out for those three countries th- these similar rules about requiring proof of vaccination had saved something like forty six thousand hospital admissions and six thousand four hundred lives. It's un- it's an uncomfortable thing for um, those of us who um, you know put a high price on individual freedom, but public health has always had a, a role, a, a sense that you know what you're doing is is sort of for the common good. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you walk around and infect people, or when the level of case is so high that the health system becomes swamped, so that people can't get treated, and and people who could very easily live um, end up dying or when you end up having lockdowns because cases are so high that then you know y- your choice about being vaccinated effect affects everybody 
and sort of you you can take a view about um you know how you how you what precedent what kind of prominence you put on on these various things but it is interesting that um vaccine mandates do do help they do produce some some sort of good and when i see um you know the 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 just the rejection of this on on principle um among on the us right i think that um you know, I think I think it comes in at a, at a real cost in lives. Having said that, um, I I also think that um, the pandemic has created a kind of priesthood of a sort of science public health gurus mm-hmm. who quite like looking, sort of shutting people away, who quite like you know warning about the next catastrophe, and um, you know, sort of politicians need to know. Kind of when's enough enough. So yeah. these are these are judgments. They are they are you know, there is there is a role for done. You shouldn't just sort of shut everyone away because you're frightened. But but I think it requires a certain amount of kind of clarity about the evidence um, and and an assessment to to sort of look at it dispassionately. And my my sort of regret is that in the US the evidence is kind of fodder for partisan uh, warfare rather than. The ingredients for making a sort of sensible decision, for sure. And 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 I'm glad you brought up the second part of that because, well, I've been beating up on, you know, people on my of my ideological persuasion more or less. Um, there is this profound sense that that there are some of these, some of these public health experts, both in and out of government are having the time of their lives and, um, it's never uh, going to be as good again. Yeah. I mean, it's like people care. I mean, like how often do we epidemiologists get called to be on TV five times a week, you know? And I I remember, so I used to work for this guy, Ben Wattenberg, who was a, uh, former LBJ speechwriter and, um, and a columnist and an author. And he was a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And he was a good anti-communist Democrat from the old days. And I remember, him making fun of other scholars at AI who had long been sort of Sovietologists, arms control experts, nuclear weapon experts, and saying, God, it just must suck for you because no one cares about any of the stuff that you want to talk about anymore. And, and I'm not <laughs> saying, you know, I'm not saying that these people don't have something important to say, but one does often get the sense that they are that there's a, there's some real public choice theory at work here about wanting the rules and regulations to maintain their stature and importance in these debates. Um, and, and that's why I thought it was very funny when you said that the, the Brexit, the, the Brexit group in parliament just switched to being a COVID group because the people who do have that, that kind of faith in sort of technocratic, you know, what, what some of my friends call transnational progressive elites. Uh, it makes total sense to me that you would find those people just sort of segueing into that kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Now, I, I, I think that, you know, much as, as, I, as you know, Abbott and DeSantis sort of worry me, I, I, I'm also angry with the American teachers unions. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you look, if you make a sort of an international comparison about uh, time lost, in for pupils because schools have been closed down 
Um, the US, I, I think by, by our figures anyway, we wrote about it recently, it was twice as bad as Ireland, three times as bad as France, and four times as bad as Spain. Yeah. And, and, you know, from what we can tell, the evidence that teachers are at, at any particularly more risk than any other people in schools that are open, it just, just isn't really there. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this is not evidence-based policy. This is, is I, I don't know, you can tell me why the teachers' unions want to keep schools closed, but, but it, it seems to me, you know, a, a self-important bunch of people who like to flex their muscles uh, and turn everything into a fight with management. And it's not helping children at all. It's really, really bad for children. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an area where the left has, has done extraordinarily badly. Uh, even as they've sort of fetishized lockdowns and the, the, the price, I mean, it's, it's been corrupting in so far as you actually had, I think it was the head of the California teachers union say there's no such thing as learning loss from missing school, which is so contrary to the (laughs) long-term interests of teachers to make that argument. And so obviously untrue. Um, and so I don't, I don't have a great grasp of the sociology of the teachers unions that, that want to literally die on this hill of doing school remotely. Um, I think a big chunk of it, it has to do with the fact that the culture of the teachers unions is that the most, the most radical and recalcitrant and, and so the, the worst apples require solidarity from all the other apples in the barrel. And, mm. you know, so like, you know, uh, you know, Stephen Brill years ago wrote this fantastic, you know, piece about the rubber rooms in New York City public education system. And they were called the rubber rooms because um, I can't remember exactly what they call them rubber rooms. But the, the gist of them was these were rooms where there were teachers who were accused, plausibly accused of uh, everything from pedophilia to wanton drunkenness on the job. And, but the teachers unions refused to fire them or allow them to be fired. So they were warehoused in rooms where they got paid to look at their phones or do whatever, um, eight hours a day. And that kind of union solidarity mindset, I think probably has a big part to do with this where there are a hand, not all teachers want to do this, but they go with, you know, they, they all want to have to move together, but I, that's pure speculation on my part. Um, yeah, we, we speculated that it was partly because the, the, the school districts are so fragmented. You didn't really get any sort of sensible collective decision making. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and sort of each group sort of made up its mind as to whether to sh- shut the school, which meant they were sort of vulnerable to, you know, to campaigns by teachers unions that are more centralized. Um, anyway, like, who knows? But what, whatever the case, it's not good for America's children. That, yeah. that they've had to, and it's not good for their parents either, frankly, that they have to be, um, you know, sh- sort of learning from home for so much of the time. One other, one other piece of it, I think, just thinking it through, is that if you look at the numbers of people who work in, in K through 12 public education in the States, the real growth is among the administrators who aren't in classrooms to begin with and probably very much like working from home yeah. um, and how much influence they have. I don't know. So where do you, where do you, where do you stand on masking? Like, uh, is it yeah, I, I'm a pointless fan of masking. now? Hmm? I'm a fan of masking because, um, you know, of all the interventions, 
it's really not that much of a problem. I mean, it's not it, it, it's 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 really not a massive deal to put a mask on when you go into a shop. I, it's no point masking outdoors. That's that's pointless. But but that you know, it doesn't have to have a very big effect uh, for it to be worthwhile because it, it it it's it's not a big imposition. What about um, masking a kids in schools? Well. The thing about children is they're really not very vulnerable to the disease. Now they can spread the disease. So, mm-hmm. so you know, this disease tends to spread it in households, and it's it's true that children might, um, they, I suppose, they might catch the disease at school and take it back to their families. I'm I'm less keen on masking children because I think it, it's the chances are it, it disturbs them. But I, I guess it's an empirical question, and one has to one has to look at the you know how how much disease there is at a particular time and how much it's spreading. Um, you know there have been there have been some rules to to mask children and others others haven't and I haven't looked at the figures to compare the two. But so Boris Johnson, it, it, with with this lifting of all of the COVID stuff, is that including masking requirements in schools? Yeah, I think, and I think everything's going. I think. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a particularly scientific decision. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think it's an indication of the way that his pre- premiership's going to go now, which is essentially. He's going to be run by his backbenchers because mm-hmm. um, he's under a sort of permanent eviction order. I think for yeah. for, the, for the rest of this term. Um, so one of the ongoing themes, I some listeners really are interested in this, and some are, um, let's just say, fed up with it. Um, I have this, <laughs> I have this theory that I've written about. That I've, I've talked with Paul Bloom from Yale about about how our brains. Sort of our lizard brains are wired in certain ways to uh, be irrationally afraid of things like of, of invisible threats, right? Of, and basically disease. And there's all sorts of if you read Jonathan Haidt um, and Bloom and some of these other guys, uh, there's all this fascinating literature about how you know subtle pheromone cues can cause people to change their attitudes about everything from immigration, you know, because oh strangers are dangerous if you're if that part of your brain is sort of primed and i think that this explains a significant portion maybe not a majority of it because i think america was already kind of thrown into a weird place during the trump years for other reasons but um a lot of the craziness that is well documented in america road rage incidents people having to be duct taped to chairs on planes uh some of the some of the homicide like i i think uh, defund the police was incredibly stupid on every level and the places that sort of operationalized that to one extent or another paid a price but homicide rates are up all over the place and I think it has something to do obviously something to do with lockdown culture which causes people to go crazy but also just something that causes people to to be in a more of a fl- fight or flight mode generally when there's a something like a pandemic going on do you, have you seen any, first of all, do you think that's got some merit? I don't think you have to subscribe to it entirely, but B, um, are people being weird in other countries too? I mean, like we've seen the number of violent and disruptive incidents on air, fl- air tra- on flights in America go up, I think fivefold. Um, I've noticed this, my friends have noticed this, just driving in the DC area. Some people have been think it's now an opportunity to sort of be mad max and just fly through red lights and cut people off and all that kind of thing um the stories about people being rude and mean to uh, cashiers and other retail workers you know it's a national trend 
Um, is this just because Americans are ornery and weird or is it, is, do you think that, the, have you seen evidence that this kind of thing is going on even anecdotally around the world? Well, um, there's a physician and, and sort of um, thinker from Yale called, uh, I think it's Nicholas Christakos. Have you come mm-hmm. across him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who's, who's written a book about pandemics and he, he goes back to, to look at what are the social effects of pandemics. And um I think sort of for, you know two two things strike me going on what you're saying. One of them is that it, it changes you know, lockdowns and pandemics change your sense of kind of risk and what's risky behavior. And um in both positive and negative ways, people are emboldened to take risks. Um, you know, it it and you can sort of understand why it's sort of at the very simplest level because it, it, pandemics sort of knock you off your routine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're stuck in, you know, all of us sort of get up and go to work and come home and do it the next day. You kind of, it's very easy just to kind of fall into a slight rut and just do it tomorrow because you did it today. Well, pandemics sort of are, are a natural break in that and they make people ask questions about kind of whether they want to carry on doing that. And, um, you know, he contends that people people exhibit risky behaviour um, uh, when they've been through something like a pandemic. They also want meaning. Um, and um, it makes you ask, you know, like, what's the point of being alive if I'm just going to be stuck in a rut and, you know, doing a routine thing? I, I, want, I want my life to be worth something and I want it to mean something. And I want my relationships with my family and, and my children and my friends to mean more as well. So he, he, his view is that, uh, I don't quite know how one would prove this empirically, but his, his view is that, you know, it's no accident that the, the roaring 20s came after the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. a time of kind of artistic creativity, fantastic energy, uh, kind of r- great creation and, and a fair amount of risk taking and a sort of hot headed instability. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I can see uh, who knows whether this will turn out to be true or not. But I, I could see the twenties now having some of the same ingredients. I mean, you know, not only is is are all those factors of the pan- pandemic present to the extent that they are um, causal, but we're also living at a time of um, you know incredible geopolitical instability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the world. The world is shifting and turning, and, and none of us know quite where it's going to end up. Um, your and my uh, political systems are, are showing their age, mm-hmm. and, and are in desperate need of renewal of some sort or another. They've got terribly stuck in in a in a in a rut, um, and um, you know you sense that. Uh, well, I sense, and I'd be interested to know whether you do too. I sense that you know something is coming to an end. And I don't quite know what's going to re- replace it. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems sort of apt, doesn't it, that a, that a pandemic comes along and shakes us all up and, and sort of teaches us that we don't have to carry on living the way we, we were living before. And it would greatly, you know, it, it would surprise me if looking back, um, we don't s- sort of see it as something of, of a watershed. You know, I, I, the, the nearest comparison in my lifetime, because I've, I've, I've lived through, you know, a, a, a sort of few decades that have been kind of, for, for the West anyway, incredibly stable, mm-hmm. was the way the, the financial crisis affected everything. Because to begin with, it seemed as if, you know, the world's kind of carrying on to a surprising degree. 
But, you know, look back 10 or sort of seven, eight years on it mm-hmm. and, and you realise just how important it really was yeah. and how, you know, things started to slide and, and attitudes that seemed sort of as solid as rock were just sort of, you know, melting away. So, uh, so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a long-winded way of saying, I, I think something, you know, I, think, I do think the, the pandemic is a catalyst um, for, for all of those reasons. And I, I expect that, um, you know, we're going to live through a very, very um, disorientating and I hope exciting decade. Um, I'd love to la- leave it on that, which I thought was quite eloquent and global uh, perspective on it. But um, two things. One, I think you're right about the financial crisis. There was that very, I think it was the European Journal of Politics or po- Journal of European Politics. Anyway, there was there are these two uh, um, economic historians, I think, um, who went and looked at financial crises compared to other kinds of economic crises and found that they had a very long tail of consequences and they tended to usher in eras of robust and sometimes pernicious populism, right? Right. Because people were sort of at settled expectations about what their place in the system and then unseen forces moving ones and zeros around screwed them and they got radicalized. And I think you don't get Trump without the financial crisis. No, um, I totally agree. And I don't think you get some of those anti-vax stuff without the financial crisis. There was a certain unmooring that came from that. But the I other thing, I, I just can't let you get, get away. China without it, actually, General. And I, I, I think, I'm not sure you get China without it in the sense that, you know, if you look at um, the sort of study groups that were going on in China before the financial crisis and then what they concluded as a combination of, um, you know, the mess in the Middle East and Afghanistan and the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. test of, of Western, particularly US power in those countries and how, how it went wrong, followed by the close lock, close on the heels with, by the financial crisis. I, 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 in my, in my sort of mental map of the past 20 years, that's the moment at which convergence stops. Um, I don't really buy mm, the, the mm-hmm. thesis that you see around in some among some sinologists now that it was always part of a long term plan, never to divert, never, never to converge. Mm. Uh, it was all, divergence was always just about to happen. You, I, it, maybe that's right, but certainly divergence really got going fast as a result of those two things, and I think the financial crisis was an essential part of that. That's really interesting. I, I, this is this is completely blush, off the subject of COVID. But. No, no, that's right. As I, as I warned you in the green room, like divert, uh, discursions are are encouraged. All right, but the other thing I can't let you get away, and I know we're at the end of our hour, but um, uh, Matt Ridley, formerly of yeah. The Economist, friend uh, of the friend, podcast, yeah. sort of a friend of mine, um, he's gone a long way in persuading me that that some version of the lab leak thesis is certainly plausible, far more plausible than we were told it was two years ago and probably likely. Um, I don't want you, I don't want to cause dissent. I don't want you guys <laughs> to start staring at each other and giving each other dirty looks at, at Simpsons or wherever you got, you dine. But um, uh, where do you come down on the lab leak thesis? So I, I, I'm going to, um, sort of qu- quote our line on this because I have not done reporting on it personally. My colleagues have, and we have a 
we have a team of COVID reporters here, and one of them in particular, she's looked, she's looked at this. And um, I agree with you that the um, sort of early sort of tusk tusk, um, this isn't, a, this is definitely not a lab leak, um, is, was, mis- was wrong and, and misplaced. Um, and um, it was an example of um, sort of scientists um, not wanting to rock the boat mm. and not wanting to kind of set hairs running that they were, they were worried about. And so it was, I think, rather than um, malign um, uh, misinformation designed to cover something up, I think it was sort of patronizing um, superiority of sort of don't frighten the horses, you know, mm-hmm. don't, don't get the children frightened by this. You know, we know better. Um, and, and let's just sort of, you know, let's not create a, a sort of, you know, massive um, uproar by giving this any credence. And I think that that was, um, I think that was clearly a mistake. Um, and the, there was also, I mean, just, in, I, I want you to finish, yeah. but there was also some fairly outrageous, uh, and this is the right place to use the word kowtowing to, to the Chinese yeah. where you had world health, you know, you had people coming out with, you know, saying, how dare you question, yes, you know, wet markets that's racist. You had yes. uh, the mayor of New York city was saying that wearing the travel bans and wearing masks were signs of anti-Asian bigotry. You know, I mean, it was like a, a weird, and I'm not saying de Blasio was in the pay of the Chinese, but the Chinese were exerting a lot of influence in the was, World Health bureaucracy. And there were also conflicts of interest. You know, some people who, who claim to be, um, you know, saying this, this, you know, this can't be a, 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 a lab leak actually had, you know, interesting connections to mm-hmm. China. So there was, there was sort of bad practice, I think. But our, our view has been um, that, that you can't tell. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just the, the evidence isn't there. And I, I, I confess I haven't read Matt's book where mm-hmm. he sets out, you know, all, all his thoughts. So um, you should have him, him on too. Oh, I have. I have. He's been on. And, okay. and I mean, just the fact that the the nearest bat with the coronavirus to Wuhan was 900 miles away tells you something. And also, you know, the, the John Stewart line, I think, I, you know, is it's not dispositive, but it does cut through a lot of it, which is that you have a virus emerging from Wuhan across the street from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is an odd coincidence. And, you know, I think his line was, if there was a chocolate-based disease that emerged across the street from the Hershey plant, it should not be outrageous to suggest that maybe it had something to do with the Hershey plant. And I think there's, you know, it's like Emerson once said, some circumstantial evidence is very strong is when you find a trout in the milk. Um, the, the Wuhan viral biology lab is a pretty big trout in the milk as far as I'm concerned, but I could except, be wrong. Except the fact that, you know, a- animal markets are, uh, you know, an obvious source of sure. zoonotic infections. Um, and, um, you know, it is known that these coronaviruses have had a habit of finding um, sort of medians, uh, species that can act as, as uh, a medium between the bats where uh, they um, 
inhabit um, in vast numbers and varieties through to human populations. It's happened before. And just because you haven't found the vector yet, it doesn't, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And the, um, you know, the, the, the arguments that, um, that, that, that one heard on the lab leak theory that, you know, this, this virus was so adapted to humans that, you know, made you think it must have been passaged through, through, um, animals to make it, you know, more, have it gain a function and make it more, more dangerous. Um, sort of slightly undermined by the fact that, that, you know, uh, Omicron's, you know, seven or eight times more infectious than the, the Wuhan strain. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the answer is that, that there's lots of circumstantial evidence in both directions. And I've heard people sit down and have arguments about it and, and the kind of proof one way or another is there and might, might never, might never emerge. Um, so yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, 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 I think that's fair. I mean, I agree. I don't think, I, I think, I do think China covered it up at the beginning. Sure. I do think yeah. China, you know, I do, I do think China, even if it behaved better with, with um, this disease than it did with SARS, I think it still behaved badly. Um, and that, um, you know, it was, it was, you know, for a combination of sort of local officialdom and, and sort of national behavior was too slow, even if it was faster than before. So, I think all of that's true. And I do think that if it had emerged from a lab, China would be trying to cover it up. So right. sort of all of that's consistent, but I don't know that it did emerge from a lab. Yeah. And, and the fact that China is now saying it came out of Fort Bragg, um, tells you something too, but, um, <laughs> it, it does. That's right. Um, all right. So, so Edward Carr, thank you so much for doing this. I, 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 I we might cut me asking this question, but I, I feel sort of obliged. I've hired a research assistant from the UK. He's been working for me remotely for months, and now he's finally in the US. And I got a very disturbing email from another British listener who says that my research assistants claim that he had never heard of Marmite, uh, <laughs> make no sense, and might suggest that he is some sort of infiltrator and yes. not actually from the UK. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not giving his name or anything like that, but like, you, does that sound plausible to you? Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. And who hasn't heard of Marmite? Every everybody's not only heard of Marmite; they either love it or they hate it. That's the thing about Marmite, right? It's like the didn't they have an ad campaign? And that's how yes. it came up on the podcast. Was they had an ad campaign exactly. about like pro or anti Marmite? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, a, it's the most brilliant ad campaign because because uh, you either love it or you hate it. And actually, you know, one of the tests is is that if you if you love it, you almost certainly are British because. You hate it if you haven't eaten it by the age of sort of two. You know, right, right. You have to have things. it as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, otherwise it's just objectively disgusting. So you have to you have to have it um, when you know you're at a very influ- influenceable age. Yeah, this, this has been bothering me because it's sort of like in the old the Great World War Two movies where, like in the Great Escape, where the Gestapo guys would trip up the Americans who were undercover in Germany, and they would say like, you know, what do you think about the Red Sox? Or you yes, know, good that, morning. That great- you know, it's that, that great scene from Inglorious Bastards, the Tarantino, um, oh, yeah, yeah, the Tarantino yeah, yeah. movie. Do you remember that? And he p- speaks perfect German, and he's he 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 does a sign with his hands that that sort of you don't make in this, you only make in this Tyrolean Valley rather than. Do you right. remember that bit? And that's yeah, how he yeah, knows, yeah, that re- he knows that. It's also he's one of the Americans. In the old Lu- in the Ludlum novels, those old Cold War novels, uh, they would catch Soviet 
spies by how they use the knife and fork because there are ways Americans use knives and forks versus the way yeah. Russians do. Um, so I mean, this has me concerned because this guy has access to my like social security number and whatnot. Yes, I, and I'd, I'd be very worried. I, what I'd do is I, I would sort of, you know, make him a nice sandwich, uh-huh. slip in some Marmite and, and just see if, if he likes it, you're safe. And if he, if, he's, if he makes a face of sort of, you know, puckered disgust, then he's almost certainly an agent. Okay. Good to know. Uh, so Ed Carr, thank you so much for doing this and being and indulging me. I, I really enjoyed this and I'd love to have you back sometime. If you want to talk about foreign policy stuff, love to do that some other time. Thanks. Jim. Thank it was you. Great fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again to Ed Carr. I thought that was really useful and interesting and um, I'm really grateful uh, that he was um, willing to do this with some unknown. Oh, I guess he, knew who I was, uh, a podcaster uh, across the pond. Um, I need to offer a clarification. Uh, Guy Denton, um, the aforementioned possible infiltrator um, uh, from the UK who works for me at AEI, uh, he clarified and said that he um, never said that he never tried it. I know he never said that he'd never heard of it. He just said that he never tried it. And, um, I misremembered, but I also, I did get this email recently from a British listener who maybe, and maybe I misread the email too, said, I thought he had said that guy had said that he had never heard of it, which, um, clearly would be a sign that, you know, he's a, um, you know, member of Hydra or some sort of nefarious um, uh, group or or nation state that is trying to infiltrate either the dispatch or AEI or do something nefarious with my dogs. But he says, no, 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 he's heard of it. It's just that he's never tried it. And fair enough. Okay, I just want to get that out there because I could see this running away into a whole thing Oh, you know, like who is Guy Denton? And, um, uh, and so I just wanted to be clear. It was my mistake. Um, still don't trust him, but, um, still think he's sort of shady and might in fact be Canadian. Um, but that's an issue for another time. Uh, anyway, I, I had a really great time talking to, to Edward Carr. I'm bummed he is not EH Carr's grandson. I thought that was going to be like this really cool discovery. Um, and thanks to all of you. Uh, we also had a great podcast, the first podcast of the week with Mike Schellenberger. We've gotten just fantastic uh, response to that one as well. So we had a good week and there will be a return to the solo remnant tomorrow. Um, and uh, thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.